0: This week, a new book encourages us to think differently about people with autism spectrum disorder. It
1: could be that having a diversity of human cognitive styles will prove to be humanity's saving grace.
0: Plus, plankton's surprising role in our clouds. This is The Nature Podcast for September 10th, 2015. I'm Adam Levy.
2: And I'm Jeff Marsh. Towards the end of the 18th century, in a South London district called Clapham, a curious man takes a solitary walk. He begins late at night and sticks to the middle of the road in a careful bid to avoid interaction with anyone else. He takes the same route every night for 25 years. During the day, he makes some of the greatest scientific breakthroughs of his time. He was the first to accurately measure the density of the earth and the first to decipher the composition of water but he's uncredited for most of it because he always shunned the spotlight. This man is Henry Cavendish, and he's been retrospectively diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, a type of autism. It was unheard of in the 18th century, but diagnosed at higher rates than ever today. There are many on the autism spectrum who, like Henry Cavendish, shape the world around us, and we as a society should appreciate their value and help them flourish. That's according to Steve Silberman in his recently published book Neurotribes. I started off by asking Steve when autism became known to psychiatry.
1: In the 1930s, in the late 1930s, Hans Asperger in Vienna discovered what we now call the autism spectrum. He saw autism as a very broad and inclusive condition with diverse and colorful manifestations that ranged from children who couldn't speak to chatty professors of astronomy. Unfortunately, his work was buried after World War II by the man who would go on to become the world's leading authority on autism, Leo Connor, an American child psychiatrist. Connor's view was that autism was a very very rare form of what he called infantile psychosis but because he was the world's leading authority and because he got the credit for discovering autism even though asperger had discovered it before him his view prevailed for decades
2: and it's not just academic is it these squabbles over um, diagnosis what impact do these discussions have on the lives of autistic people
1: That's the thing. Uh, In the case of Connor and Asperger, it was not just a struggle for who gets the credit for discovering autism because they had such radically different views of what autism is, specifically because Connor would go on to blame parents, you know, quote, unquote, refrigerator mothers, which was nonsense. His recommended treatment for autism was to put the child in an institution and for the parents to move on with their lives. Two generations of autistic children at least vanished into asylums. Meanwhile, the parents were cautioned not to talk about their children because it would subject them to the social stigma of having caused autism in their children. And then that all changed when the parents movement came along and said, this is nonsense that parents cause autism. Genetic researchers made scientific breakthroughs that proved that autism was primarily genetic. And also Lorna Wing came along and changed the criteria for the diagnosis of autism so that they became much broader and much more inclusive. And that's what happened in the late 80s and early 90s, when the number of diagnoses started going up.
2: Now, even though we hear about the possible causes of autism on an almost daily basis in the press, your book sort of avoids this altogether, doesn't it?
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, in a sense, I feel that society has been obsessing over the causes of autism at the expense of doing what we really should be doing, which is to create social structures that make the lives of autistic people and their families easier.
2: What would you say were the main considerations then in making an environment in which people on the spectrum can thrive in education and throughout later life?
1: Well, obviously, if you're going to hire someone with autism, you don't hire them because they're a real people person, as they say in America. You hire them because they're incredibly good at what they do. And incredibly focused. And so we have to look at how we hire people and to get beyond the notion that the only valuable employer is one who is charming and a, a quote unquote, good team player.
2: What was kind of heartening in the book was that a lot of autistic people now in the dawn of the, the internet and you know, more awareness of the condition, they've become activists themselves and they almost speaking on their own behalf for a lot of these issues.
1: Yes, exactly. Autistic people have created communities online that have allowed them to share details about their lives and realize that they have common struggles and common challenges and that they can help each other, and that they're also angry, understandably so, by how they have been mistreated and marginalized and excluded and bullied. So uh, now groups like the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network are taking control of Things like having a voice in public policy formulation, and they contributed to the delineation of the criteria for autism diagnosis in the DSM-5. There are events like Outscape, uh which happens in Europe. I've, in fact, I believe Autscape is happening now, which is an event that is run by autistic people for autistic people.
2: Embrace the neurodiversity, that's another term that came up a lot in your book.
1: Exactly, yeah. And neurodiversity is not, you know, some people say, well, it's, you know, it's just a political position or something. It's not. It's it's a living fact, like biodiversity in a rainforest. And like biodiversity, neurodiversity may contribute to resilience and vigor in human society over long periods of time as we face changing conditions in the world, like global warming. So it could be that having a diversity of human cognitive styles will prove to be humanity's saving grace as we deal with the challenges that are coming up in the 21st century.
2: That was Steve Silberman, and his book Neurotribes is out now. And if you'd like to listen to a more in-depth conversation, there's a podcast extra of this interview available now where you found this one.
0: Coming up in the news chat, how to protect your data from quantum hackers. Or quackers? As they're not known. But first, it's time for the Research Highlights with Noah Baker.
3: Researchers at the LHC may have found a chink in the armour of the standard model. Physicists go to theory to explain the workings of the universe. What they discovered, you cry? Well, B meson particles can decay into particles called muons and taus. The standard model says these decays should happen equally often if you take into account mass but experiments are showing a tiny difference. This may not seem like a big deal, and the results are still pretty uncertain, but if they hold out, this could overhaul theoretical physics as we know it and pave the way to finally understanding dark matter and dark energy. Check out the full paper in Physical Review Letters. Scientists have uncovered a new species of giant virus, and when I say new, I mean 30,000 years old. The virus was found frozen in permafrost and uses double-stranded DNA to store its genome. Giant viruses are big enough to be seen with a normal light microscope. This one's about 500 nanometers across. The researchers reckon that megaviruses like these probably aren't all that rare and that mining and drilling in the Arctic might one day unleash one that's capable of infecting humans. Chilling thought. The study is in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences.
2: Theo Wilson, a scientist at Leeds University in the UK, has his head in the clouds. And no, that's not an insult. It's just that clouds are all he thinks about.
4: My favourite type of cloud is cirrus, because it's all ice, you know, much more interesting.
2: Ah yes, specifically, he's into ice clouds. Clouds are made up of water droplets, ice crystals, or a mixture of the two. And ice, it turns out, is very important to a cloud's behaviour. It affects how long they exist, what sorts of weather they spew out, how much heat they trap to the Earth, and how much sunlight they bounce back into space. Put all this together, and understanding how ice forms in clouds is crucial for making climate change projections. You might think that cloud ice just forms when water droplets fall below zero degrees, but that's not the full story. Ice crystals often need a kickstart from airborne particles, like dust from the Sahara, for example. But in polar and remote regions, these particles are largely missing from the atmosphere. Yet something's helping the clouds to make ice in these watery, remote places. Theo and his team had a theory about where these particles might be coming from.
4: Here's Theo. Commonly, clouds can exist as liquid below the freezing point of zero degrees. So cloud droplets are able to supercool, And in fact, cloud droplets can cool down to minus 38 in the absence of any ice nucleating particles that will help nucleate the ice crystal.
2: So what sorts of factors do climate modelers take into account then when they're trying to predict when and where these ice clouds form?
4: Well currently because our level of understanding of cloud microphysics uh, is is relatively poor it's very difficult to represent that in a climate model so currently they have to make quite broad parameterizations about the freezing of clouds and um, we're trying to learn more about the fundamentals of ice formation in clouds
2: okay but one thing that you look for then is these particles floating around in the atmosphere that that sort of raise the temperature at which these water droplets can form ice crystals
4: Yeah, that's right. So we call them INPs or ice nucleating particles. And these are particles that can help an ice particle form. And perhaps one of the biggest sources of ice nucleating particles is from the deserts. You have a huge amount of dust uplifted from places like the Sahara Desert in particular. And we know that is a major source of ice nucleating particles in the atmosphere.
2: But in a nutshell, then, you were looking for a marine source of some sort of small particle that would substitute for the sort of dust and things that you find from the land that would form these ice clouds.
4: Yes. We were interested in looking at organic material in the oceans. And that organic material is the kind of material that gets into sea spray aerosols, so the kind of aerosol you get generated when waves break.
2: And that's how these particles get up into the atmosphere. They just get smashed about in foam and waves and whipped up by the wind.
4: That's right. So when you have white capping waves, you get lots of bubbles bursting. um, And when bubbles burst, you get organically enriched film droplets. And that organic material gets flung into the atmosphere and then they can get lifted up to cloud level.
2: But you weren't actually taking reads of the ice clouds themselves in this work, were you? What were you sampling instead?
4: We sample the top layer of the ocean, so it's referred to as the surface microlayer. That very top layer of the ocean is enriched in surface-active organic material, so it's organic material that accumulates at interfaces, uh, i.e., the, in this case, the interface between air and water. We sampled it using a remote control sampling vessel, so it's a vessel that we can, we can pilot remotely from the ship and drive away and sample water that's uncontaminated by the ship, ideally.
2: Now, presumably the water at the surface in these regions is just a real soup of, of organic material. How did you zero in on plankton poo? That's That was the headline of this paper, wasn't it? How did you zero in on that as this ice nucleating factor?
4: Certainly, uh, it's well known that a lot of the organic material you get in the microlay originates from phytoplankton exudates. So these are the sort of organic uh, goo that phytoplankton produce. And we did some other analyses on our samples. We found the presence of phytoplankton exudates. And we also performed some laboratory experiments where we separated phytoplankton exudates from the phytoplankton themselves. uh, And we found that the exudate material was still active at nucleating ice. So it was able to help ice crystals form.
2: And you mentioned in your paper that this is going to have the most significant effect in areas where the particles that you might get off the land, like dust and and whatnot, uh, would be less present.
4: That's right. So uh, in areas where um, you have a lot of dust, dust will dominate the picture as far as ice-nucleating particles are concerned. If you go to remote regions at the poles or, say, in the the Southern Ocean, where you're remote from dust sources and also from other terrestrial sources, maybe anthropogenic sources as well, the marine particles are going to be more important part of the picture.
2: Was it quite a new idea to you that there could be this organic material affecting the clouds?
4: We see other biological material that is able to act as ice nucleating particles in the atmosphere. So, for instance, there are fungal spores, there are certain bacteria that are very efficient at nucleating ice, and also recently there's been work on pollens to say that certain pollens will uh, themselves nucleate ice. So there is certainly other biological uh, factors uh, as far as ice nucleation in the atmosphere is concerned.
2: And I mean, it sounds like also that this phenomenon well, of these biogenic particles, you know, creating the ice clouds, sounds like there's quite a lot of factors that could affect that process. So you've got the wind speed and you've got the waves and you've got the abundance of the, the plankton in the first place. How do you assume that the, the, this phenomenon is going to be affected under different models of climate change?
4: I think we have a, still an awful lot of work to do to really establish how uh, the oceans might change uh, in relation to climate and um, I think certainly ice nucleating particles are something that might be part of that mix but I think uh, we need to do some more work before we can make any um, big uh, answers about that.
2: That was Theo Wilson discussing his work on ice clouds. Check out the whole paper as well as a news and views article at nature.com nature. Time now
0: for our weekly news chat, and Richard Van Norden joins us in the studio. Hi, Richard. Hello, Adam. So in last week's news chat, Davide Castelvecchi was telling us about quantum spookiness and how this might help us encrypt our data in the future unhackably. But in the meantime, before that hits our shelves, we need to bolster current techniques. What's the main threat on the encryption that's currently being used
5: online? So the main concern for computer security research is is that quantum computers, should they arrive, would be able to unscramble the main method by which pretty much everything online is protected.
0: You say if they were to arrive, but people do seem to be taking this threat really very seriously. I always thought quantum computers were miles away. Is that actually some kind of imminent threat?
5: The problem with whether quantum computers are here is that much of what's being done on them is being done behind closed doors. So because uh, organisations like America's NSA are very interested in quantum computers, it's basically widely assumed that what we see published, which is uh, not nearly enough to make a quantum computer, doesn't actually represent the cutting edge of research. So all right, maybe not now, but maybe in 10 years, 20 years time, a quantum computer could come online. And security agencies are already concerned. In fact, they're concerned that uh, in a scenario called Intercept Now, Decrypt Later, attackers could already be uh, intercepting and storing financial transactions, other encrypted traffic now, storing that up, and then in 10 years or 20 years time, when quantum computers become available, immediately unscrambling it all.
0: So how would they be unscrambling this and how are things encrypted at the moment?
5: Well, one of the major safeguards of internet traffic today is called RSA encryption. So this relies on using a freely available digital key to lock up a message. And the recipient has a secret key to unlock it. The way this works is that the freely available key effectively protects the message with an enormously large number. And to unlock that message, you need to factor that large number down into its prime factors it takes existing computers a very long time to do it because no one's discovered how to do it quickly. But it's been well known for a long time that a quantum computer could factorise a large number exponentially faster than a conventional computer. So suddenly encrypted messages become easy to read.
0: So does this mean that all our data is in trouble and we have to worry about hackers stealing our information right now?
5: Well, happily not, and that's what our story is about security experts are already working on other ways to encrypt messages using classical techniques that would be, if not necessarily impossible, much, much harder for quantum computers to solve. So I'll, I'll run through a few of them if you want to hear about them. <laughs> sure, yeah. Well, one is called lattice-based cryptography. So the public key is... Uh, a sort of grid-like collection of points in a very high-dimensional mathematical space. So one way to send a secret message is to hide it at a certain distance from a point in this imaginary lattice of different mathematical dimensions. But this is a very hard problem for a computer to solve, conventional or quantum. Another one is called McAleese encryption, and that hides a message by first representing the message as the solution to a very simple linear algebra problem. And the public key that everyone can see transforms that simple problem into a really fiendishly difficult mathematical problem. Again, too difficult even for a quantum computer to unscramble. So compute security experts are thinking right now about switching over for the best security even if the day of quantum computers never comes.
0: I can see why these alternative encryption methods are appealing, because it's quite hard to decrypt what they even mean. Um, And in other news, there's been somewhat of a different call on
5: researchers to work on a somewhat different project. This is our second story this week. It's a conference in London where volunteer editors at Wikipedia are trying to reach out to scientists to get them to make some edits to the online encyclopedia. Scientists are actually a little bit wary of it. I mean, partly because you could go on and put some expert sentence in, and anyone else can come in and just undo your edit, regardless of their expertise. So, in a kind of um, getting to know you meeting in London, uh, some volunteer editors at the website uh, are reaching out to scientists to say, please help us and please bridge the gap between this online public encyclopedia and and the research community It seems quite surprising to me that researchers don't
0: love editing Wikipedia as it is. It seems to really appeal to someone who's quite obsessive, quite into getting the true facts out there. Why is it that there aren't more researchers on Wikipedia in
5: the first place? I think one of the problems, and this is according to Martin Poulter, who has uh, organised the meeting. He's at the University of Oxford's Bodleian Library, Uh, and he says there's just a cultural barrier. People think I'm too busy. I'm doing my research. Why am I going to go back and forth on this Wikipedia page arguing? with someone I don't even know about whether this sentence says the right thing. And in fact, this isn't just a problem for scientists. The number of people editing Wikipedia has actually been falling for some time. So Wikipedia itself is desperately trying to reach out. And that's why it's trying to get a scientist to come in because they have so much expertise. And as you say... They are ultra-pedants. They do worry about getting the data right. And what approaches have
0: there already been to get scientists to commit their time?
5: Well, one computer scientist, Duncan Hull, at the University of Manchester, had a very clever approach. He is playing on scientists' egos. He persuaded the Royal Society to take on a Wikipedian in residence to fix the biographies of Royal Society fellows. So he thinks that getting that information on Wikipedia, first of all, makes those scientists, the Royal Society fellows, realise that people are reading about them on Wikipedia. But also, Hull thinks, if they find out they have an accurate biography of them and their work, that could change their view about Wikipedia as a way of communicating information to the wider public. There's another sort of interesting idea, uh, a project called PFAM and RFAM, which are databases of protein and RNA families. And they're hosted by the EBI, European Bioinformatics Institute, but open to editing by anyone through Wikipedia. And effectively, the database's entries for, say, a protein family reflect what's on that family's Wikipedia page. And if you make a change on Wikipedia, it's drawn into the main database. Now, Alex Bateman, who's at the EBI, says there's been 90,000 edits to these articles. He co-founded them in the 2000s. Um, And from articles on some protein of just a few sentences long, some entries have grown to be encyclopedic.
0: Richard, you work in a job where you're effectively paid to be pedantic in some circumstances. Have you ever edited or even created a Wikipedia article?
5: I have to admit here, I've never made a single edit to any Wikipedia page.
0: Great. Thanks a lot for joining us, Richard. For all the latest science news, head on down to nature.com forward slash news. And that's
2: it for this week. But if you need even more science multimedia, make sure you subscribe to the Nature Video channel on YouTube. We're chuffed to have just hit 100,000 subscribers. And to celebrate, Noah Baker's made a beautiful trailer. Watch it at youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. Thanks for listening. I'm Jeff Marsh. And I'm Adam Levy.